Pete Murray Show. Here's Pete and Lisa. Love our next guest. Newt Gingrich is the former Speaker of the House. His new podcast is called Newt's World, and his new book is entitled March to the Majority. Let's welcome back to the show. It is Newt Gingrich. Mr. Speaker, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate it. It's been great to be with both you and Lisa, and I'm sure we're going to have some fun. Well, I want to talk about the debt ceiling, first of all. Something rare happened in Washington, Mr. Speaker. Both Democrats and Republicans claimed a victory after voting for the same bill. It's called compromise. They figured it out. <laughs> you know, look, I, I think that that's exactly right. And one of the points I make in, in uh, March the Majority is that, you know, you, you, you change things one step at a time. Uh, I mean, if, if the, from a conservative perspective, if the debt ceiling was the last step, it's not a good deal. But if it's the first step, it's a pretty darn good deal because it moves you towards the next step in terms of getting to a balanced budget and a smaller government and less red tape. So I, it, it is a compromise. And frankly, part of what I describe in March, the majority is the four years we negotiated with Clinton. And you had to compromise all the time. He, he had to give up stuff he didn't want to. We had to give up stuff we didn't want to. But as a result, we got to the only four balanced budgets of your lifetime. And we got to welfare reform. And we got to uh, the largest capital gains tax cut in history and a lot of other stuff. Uh, but you had to listen to each other. Uh, and you had, I, we, one of our models was listen, learn, help, and lead. And if you didn't listen, you couldn't figure out what the other guy needed. Oh, my gosh. I was just going to say, why is there such a difference between you guys negotiating with Clinton and what seems to be happening now where I feel like everything is just like a stalemate and listening is clearly what's missing. Do you think there's something else that needs to be shifted back to the way things were? No. And I think if, if McCarthy can keep his momentum up, remember, he went to the White House, he, he, he called on Biden for about 90 days to negotiate. And then Biden kept saying, no, 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 no. And then they got close to a deadline and Biden said, well, maybe. And they didn't negotiate it. I mean, both, both personally, the, pre- the president and the speaker, but also they each designated some people uh, who then went and, and sat down for hours and hours and hours, which is what it takes. When, when we got to a balanced budget, uh, Clinton and I negotiated for 35 days, face to face, because I had to learn, it's a, it's a box. One side of the box is what he has to have. One side of the box is what I have to have. One side of the box is what he can never give up. And one side of the box is what I can never give up. Now, somewhere in the middle, there's a deal. But you have to listen to each other and say, well, if you keep doing it, me. And it's, 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 a, it's a system. It's negotiation 101. I, I like to bring it down to the lowest common denominator that people will understand. Think about when you're buying a house. The buyer has a price, the seller has a price, and you stick to those prices, but you can negotiate in the middle. It's the same thing in Washington. There always is a compromise, but people have been digging in for the last few years. And now, are we at a stalemate until after the 2024 election, or are we going to see more of this? No, I think you'll see more of it, partly because the Constitution was brilliantly designed by the founding fathers. And, and by the way, on Newt's World this week, we're, we're doing all week a series of podcasts on the founding fathers. And, you know, part of the design is the, the House has the power of the purse. If it doesn't pass spending, it doesn't go anywhere. And the president has the power of signing or vetoing. So you have a balance. You've got, you, you both have got to get in a rhythm here. Uh, and I think it'll be fascinating this fall with the appropriations bills, because I think the Republicans are going to cut substantially below 
the number in the debt ceiling deal. Uh, Biden is going to scream about every single cut. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how it balances out. Do you think that you have more influence now having a podcast and being able to directly talk to people who may have been your constituents in the past? Or do you feel like you had more power back when you were speaker? No, I mean, if you talk, I'm, I have some I mean, power of influence. Obviously, you had massive amounts of power, but yeah, no, I, I think when I was speaker, I had a lot more power than I have right now. <laughs> but, but I think one of the differences is I now have the time to think and reflect and to write books and to, and to do uh, three podcasts a week that I think are pretty interesting. And I do three newsletters a week at uh, gingrich360.com that are also free. Uh, so I, I think. I mean, I'm very grateful because I think that I, I have an ability to talk with the country and I have a reasonably good sized audience, whether it's listening to podcasts or reading newsletters or whatever, or watching me on Fox. But at the same time, I'm, I'm close enough to particularly the House Republicans, that I have some sense of what's going on and some sense of what they're trying to solve. And I think, uh, I mean, I, I, I regard my highest... Uh, duty to be a citizen. And I think as a citizen, uh, I'm in a very fortunate position. I'm, I'm, I'm well enough known that people listen. And when I was speaker, they often occasionally would obey. No, nobody <laughs> obeyed me. Uh, but um, the, uh, at least I, I have access to, to hear other people, and they're willing usually to at least listen to me and consider what I'm telling them. Right, right. Well, I think it's a very powerful platform because you can be in people's homes multiple times a week shaping how they view certain events and informing them about how the government works and how we want it to work and what we want going forward. I, I think it's a lot of power. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to come. I'm going to tell my wife you said that. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. You talked about negotiating with President Clinton. President Biden praised House Speaker McCarthy for making this happen. How much credit do you give to President Biden? Well, I think significant credit, I mean, I think he took too long and and was too slow, but he recognized that if he was going to get a debt ceiling increase, which he had to have, that they had to find a way to reach a deal. And he and and McCarthy, and he recognized that because Kevin McCarthy had gotten the House Republicans to pass a debt ceiling bill, that the, 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 the weight of authority was on Kevin's shoulders. And Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate leader, did a great job. He had done many of these deals himself. And this was the first time I ever saw where he stepped back and said, no, no, McCarthy's earned the right to do this. And so McCarthy walked in the room uh, carrying, if you will, the weight of the Congress. And ultimately, after they they met, uh, they mean McCarthy and Biden, they each designated people to negotiate and they negotiated for many hours uh, and gradually hammered out a deal. You know, I think that that's good. Can you talk about that for a second? Because Mitch McConnell let Kevin McCarthy basically be the proxy there. How does that work? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. You say, if, if you agree with him, I'll vote for it. That's it? Uh, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> and we were very fortunate. Senator Mike Lee led an effort and 43 senators, including McConnell, uh, signed a letter that said they would not ever vote for a continuing resolution without amendments. And that basically cut Schumer out of the deal uh, because Schumer, as the Democratic leader in the Senate, couldn't move anything. So the only player 
who had had ability to move was McCarthy. And that meant that that if Biden was going to get a deal, he was going to have to deal directly with with Kevin, uh, which he did. Right, uh, right. You know, I mean, McCarthy went down there a number of times, but equally important, the two of them agreed that only their staffs would be in the room. So Schumer didn't have any staff in the room. Uh, the Democratic leader in the House did not have any staff in the room. Uh, and the Senate Republicans were basically saying, you know, Kevin has our proxy. Uh, and that and those people worked, I, I, I talked to them occasionally, they worked really long hours. Uh, and and uh, they felt that the two people that Biden designated were smart, were technically competent, and were serious about getting to a deal, while at the same time, well, you know, legitimately fighting to protect their interests. I mean, as you pointed out earlier, if I'm the seller and you're the buyer, I don't have to voluntarily lower my price. <laughs> right. I mean, we, we have to talk it through and you have to convince me that's my best interest to lower my price. This is something that's always confused me about the debt ceiling. And I'm hoping you can clear this up for me and a lot of other people. In my mind, the debt ceiling has to be raised because we already took the money or agreed to pay. We put it on the credit card. We said, we're going to pay these bills on our credit card. Now the bill comes and we're saying, whoa, 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 we got to get rid of some of these charges. Am I looking into that right? Because in my mind, I say, is this the time to negotiate the charges? They've already happened. Why are we doing it now instead of back when we were fighting to see what we could put on the card? And your point, I think it's a good question. Up until 1917, every single bond issue had to be approved by Congress because a bond issue is, is a statement of debt saying, I'm going to pay you this. And so up until 1917, they literally, the Treasury had to go to the Congress and say, we have to borrow this money. Uh, the pressure of borrowing for World War I, they finally said, it's, just, it's, it's too much, it's too hard. So, so instead, they started setting a limit. Now, there are two things that can happen, and this is what people don't want to talk about. Treasury can quit spending on other stuff. I mean, you have to meet the bonds under our Constitution. So they could say, you know, we're not going to pay the FBI, or we're not going to pay the military, or we're not going to pay... Uh, the people building tanks or building ships. So there are ways that they could balance it if they had to, if it just all came apart. The other thing that's going on is, it is one of the places where the Congress has huge leverage because no president can allow a default to occur. So the president has to agree to a deal. I mean, if Biden didn't have to agree to a deal, we wouldn't have one. Now, the same thing- We would have a big mess on our hands. Oh, yeah. Right. (laughs) He didn't have to agree. Just not the United States, all over the world, of course. So- the, the debt ceiling is the is the biggest. Think of it as being like a heart attack. But come September 30th, at the end of the fiscal year, you have to have appropriations. There are 12 appropriations bills. One of the things we did when we first became a majority in 95, and I described this to some extent in March the Majority, we passed the most important appropriations bills first and got them out of the way. And then we came back on the less important ones, for example, the Department of the Interior or whatever, and we said, we're not going to pass this unless we get what we want. And Clinton said, well, I'm not going to sign it if you get what you want. And we actually closed the government twice, once for 26 days, but we only closed pieces of the government. So the Defense Department was already paid for, other things were already paid for. It, it, I would say that it got their attention at the White House. And, and it actually helped us with the country. We, we became, people tend to forget, we, we won for the first time in 40 years in 1994. But 
we became the first re-elected Republican majority since 1928. And I think the reason was people thought we were serious. They said, oh, you know, they're, they're willing to really do what it takes in order to have this work. There's got to be a better way to handle the debt ceiling, Mr. Speaker. Why? Because it gives ordinary citizens like me a heart attack. And it makes me, as a voter, very angry. I don't want to vote for anyone. It's the fourth quarter. Yes. 30 seconds left. I feel like it's your job as my representatives (laughs) to hammer this out before it can become economic doom. And not with three days left. There's got to be a better way. Right. Well, it would be it would be nice to live in a world where everybody could be reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> That's the quote of the year. <laughs> Former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich is our guest. Mr. Speaker, please hold on. Quick time out. More on the way. More of the Pete McMurray Show next. Now back to the Pete McMurray Show. Our guest today is Newt Gingrich, the former Speaker of the House. His new podcast is called Newt's World, and his book is entitled March to the Majority, the Real Story of the Republican Revolution. Mr. Speaker, this book is about the run the Republicans had in the 90s. Is that right? Yeah, basically it was, it was the 16-year campaign to create a majority, and then the four years of negotiating with Bill Clinton to get him to sign conservative reforms. And it's frankly a cookbook. I mean, I I wrote it because (laughs) I I thought that the current generation of citizens uh, could use uh, a case study in how to get things done. Your very point about the death cell. I think it's very interesting that you say it was a 16-year campaign. And that does speak to people today because we want everything done and we want it now. And we forget that you have to lay the groundwork and it takes time for these plans to be effective and come to fruition. Do you feel like that is something that is missing from current day America? I think it's almost always missing. And the, the number of people who can be cheerfully persistent for 10 or 12 or 16 years. Yeah. I mean, look at people like Steve Jobs, who created Apple, or look look at, uh, you know, in a sense, at Elon Musk, uh, whose, whose first rockets kept blowing up. You know, when, 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 he, when he launched his first Falcon 9, it literally blew up. And he said, wait, well, you know, we really learned a lot. <laughs> now, that's, right. that's persistence. He didn't say, I feel bad. He said, you know, and the same thing happened recently. They, they launched their new giant rocket, uh, the Starship which has 36 engines, the largest, most powerful rocket ever built. And it blew up. And he said, we have learned that we're going to learn so much from the data that when, when, he, when he fixed it in the second one, it's going to be even better. And, and he thinks it could take up to five rockets to finally figure out how to make it work. But, he, but he's, he's, again, I, I use the term cheerful persistence. It, you know, uh, Thomas Edison, when he was trying to discover the electric light, uh, at one point was approached by a young man who was a lab assistant who said, you realize we have failed on 23,000 experiments. <laughs> no, son, we have successfully eliminated 23,000 types of material. And, they, so and we have 23,000 more debt ceiling fights <laughs> until we get it hammered out a better way. I look, I think <laughs> the human condition is the power uh, power is permanent. It, you, it's very hard to imagine a human society that doesn't find some way to deal with power. 
I want to ask you about balancing the budget in the 90s. Can we do that today, or is that ship sailed? You no, know, you can do it today. Again, part of the purpose of writing um, marks the majority is to say, look, if you're willing to have, it, it took us four years, we thought it would take seven. But if you have a plan and you're willing to execute it, you can increase the economy, grow the number of jobs, increase take-home pay, and in that process, you increase government revenue, not by raising taxes, but by raising prosperity. At the same time, if you reform programs like welfare, so people go back to work, and if you apply reforms, I mean, if we simply had transparency in healthcare cost and quality, uh, I think it would take trillions out of the system. Because today, they're nice. run by oligopolies uh, who, who basically charge far more than they need to. A few quick questions. Term limits in Washington, for or against? I'm very cautious because in places like California, they've been a disaster. They uh, turn power over the bureaucrats and the lobbyists. And how about term limits for the Supreme Court? Again, I'd, I'd be very cautious because you want those folks to actually make their decision based on their own conscience, not on whether or not they're going to be reappointed. Mr. Speaker, uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for coming back on the show. Check out Newt's podcast, also his brand new book, Newt Gingrich, everybody. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Great to be with both of you. Newt Gingrich, uh, the name of the podcast is called Newt's World, and March to the Majority is his new book. There's people listening right now that just can't stand him. I understand that, but he's always entertaining when we have him on the show. Well, and I can't believe how much output he has. Three podcasts a week. That's a lot. He has a lot to say. Have you noticed politicians that we had on after the fact, after they left office, they've moved over eh, to the middle a little bit? Yeah, just a bit. Yeah. Just a bit. Because now too they're much. Well, now they're talking with the general public and they're hanging out with real people, just not the people in Washington DC. Yeah, I think it's very interesting in this system how our um primaries often get hijacked by the people with the most extreme views, left or right. Yep, yep. And it it kind of sets the conversation for the rest of the election cycle and what we want done in Washington when really it's just a vocal minority wanting these few things. I would love to see a vocal majority pushing the primaries and pushing the conversation because maybe then our politicians would focus on other things for us and get things done in Washington. Yeah, because like I said, that debt ceiling, yeah, yeah. it's great chess, but it I don't know anyone who was like, "You know what? I'm totally in with these shenanigans." No, I think not. everybody was annoyed. You're right. And everyone. It's a negotiating ploy. It is. And it stinks, and you shouldn't <laughs> negotiate with the fiscal credibility of the United States of America. Correct. Yes, but it worked. Both sides claimed victory. All right. Thanks again to the former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Love for you to follow the show on social media at Pete McMurray. More of the show on the way. I think that it's very, very important that Speaker McCarthy is such a dramatic contrast with Speaker Pelosi. Remember, she once said, you have to vote for it to find out what's in it. He's saying, no matter what the pressures are, the House is going to have 72 hours. We're going to have an argument. It's going to work out. And I think that's a huge step in the right direction. More of the Pete McMurray Show next. <laughs> 